0: Hey, family. Welcome to another edition of Cool Jazz Conversations. My name is Marcella Shapard, the bass man, and we are broadcasting live on WSSB 90.3 in South Carolina. We have a special guest today who I have been waiting to talk to for quite some time now. I'm a big fan of his. He's been a staple in the smooth jazz and contemporary jazz arena for quite a while you know him you love him he is here today i'm talking about saxophonist extraordinaire marion meadows how you doing brother
1: <laughs> great marcellus how are you man
0: every day <laughs> above ground is a good day for me and uh, i'm so elated to finally get to talk to you brother because i've been playing your music for a very very long time
1: well likewise i was looking forward to uh, us having this conversation and uh, and here we are. Uh, I'm, I'm over here in Hawaii and uh, a little earlier than where you are. But uh, uh yeah, I was telling you before, the birds wake me up anyway. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. So
0: uh, we are, I'm, a, I'm on the East Coast, so that's Eastern Standard Time.
1: You're what? You're October Pacific Time. So we're six hours earlier. Okay. And uh I think just when you go past Hawaii, you go over the International Date Line and then you'll go into the next day you're fully into the next day wow. so when you're coming back across the date line you actually pick up a whole day so you could leave japan at 12 o'clock and arrive uh at 11 o'clock the same day so you'd arrive an hour before you left <laughs> No, <laughs> i travel, brother i was about to say you, you see that as if you've done it before I've done it a few times and it's a crazy phenomena because it's when it would be Monday and you just came from Japan and you just arrived here, but now it's an hour earlier on Monday, that same day. Oh and you'll my gosh. Go the same day, only now you're an hour earlier than you left. That's so ridiculous.
0: <laughs> the life of a traveling man, huh?
1: <laughs> well, it's it's what we really do. No, as time travel, when you think about it, we can actually go across the dateline and be in the same day. And so that could kind of gives you that whole idea of those sci-fi movies as there's a there's an actual reality to that. So. So, <laughs>
0: then, so wait a minute, are you are you letting us in on a little piece here that Marion Meadows is in the sci-fi? I
1: keep going back and forth. Then I, I, I keep rolling the clock back.
0: <laughs> That's why you still look so young, right? Oh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have an <laughs>
0: age, man. That's the thing. You, you have not aged at all since 1999.
1: <laughs> well, you, you're very kind and gracious. I, I, I've certainly been in the business a long time and I'm very fortunate to have had a long career. Um, and But mo- most importantly for me is I've had the opportunity to share in this community of wonderful people um, and all my friends and colleagues and the fans, of course, uh, we've been able to share this and I've been a, a part of this for, you know, uh, you know, from the days I started with Norman Connors, mm. uh, a young student out of, out of college. And I've had a chance to um, ride this this wonderful carpet ride of 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 uh, community. Mm. And that's the thing that people don't understand the most and I shouldn't say they don't understand is it's something that I want them to share uh, in uh, is that we have all shared in this um adventure and journey together. It it's kind of made our generation uh, all PhDs in music because you know, we've grown up with the best. We, we, we've heard, our generation has heard the best. I mean, we, we, the Miles Davises and the John Coltrane's and the yeah. Earth Wind and & Fire's and, and the, you know, Ohio Players, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, Shaka Khan, Aretha Franklin, you know, uh, Prince, Michael Jackson, you know, all the the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, on and on and on. But not only have we been a part of this generation of music, our generation have seen a lot of these people live. Yeah. So and then when you think about it, a song will come up in your head and you'll go, oh, that's like a, you know, that's like a old Beatles song. Right. We have all this we have all this stored in our brains.
0: Two, and that's two, why notes tell, two notes in, you know exactly where it came from.
1: You know where it came from. You yeah. could sing the song. Yeah. And that's why I always tell the young people, you don't understand, your parents have a treasure chest of musical knowledge in their heads. Mm-hmm. They walk around with a library that, that, that's that's awe-inspiring because you you know these young kids will say to parents, how do you know that song? I grew up with that <laughs> right. in my memory banks. And uh, it's, it's a blessing for our generation that we grew up. And for me, the caveat is that I have had a chance to experience. I've had a chance to play with Phyllis Hyman and Gene Carn, and uh, record with some great musicians. I recorded with uh, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones a few years ago. And and just to be a part of this generation and have my my friends, my some of my best friends be Kirk Whalem and Gerald Albright. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, Norman Brown and all these incredible musicians and Boney James and all these people are are my friends Mm -hmm. and I get to record with them. So but here's the best part. The best part is that the love that I have 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 gathered. This is a, a, a it's like a love fest. We have we have been, we hug each other, mm. we love each other, we call each other and check in on each other. And there's never been an, a, a situation in my entire life where someone came through the doors, a musician, and someone said, "Oh wow, that's a that's a female, uh, that's a black guy, that's a white guy, mm. uh, that's a gay person." That's never happened right. in my community. We don't care. We've never cared, and it's always been an all welcoming society. And I told my mom before she passed away, "Mom, I am I am so happy that I chose this as my career, just because the community of people have blessed me so much that I have never had a preconception or 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 or, or, or any kind of notion that that anybody in my community would be anything other than a musician." And that's that's always been the way it's been for me, as a musician. So welcoming, so much love, and um, and here we are, uh, you know, being able to to continue to share this. But I, I just wanted to let the people know that's the most important thing that we that we have to offer. I think we are the court jesters, and when we go out and play, people we're not just when Of course, when we're fortunate enough to make a living, that's 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 the best. Right. But. The fact that we get on stage, I want people to understand that we get on stage because we love sharing with the fans and and the feedback that we get from from the fans is a part of our journey. You have been a part of our journey all along and that's been the real key ingredient to what, what we do because that love that you feel and the love that you give back to us, that's real that's real yeah when they say it's hard out there and society's getting all crazy and we're getting racist again and all that kind of stupid stuff it's not that hard because the musicians have been showing the way for a long long time just pay attention to what we do and how we do it and things will be all right so anyway i could babble a lot (laughs)
0: no it's so good brother that's that's a great way to open the stage but um you know you you mentioned a couple of things and and first and foremost you know um folks have been missing being out they've missed that live music element and now that the world is starting to open back up you know you guys are back into the venues uh slowly but surely you know how how much are you looking forward to that and And when, in fact, are you going to be or have you already started performing live in venues?
1: Yes, we actually have. Uh, We started uh, for me. um, It was uh, just three or four weeks ago. We started the Seabreeze Jazz Festival was the first major festival to kick off. Hmm. And I followed that by an actual club gig in Charlotte at the um, Middle Sea Club. And then I was in Dallas last week. So, yes, it's starting again. And absolutely, yes, the people related as well as we are, because, you know, a lot of us are are vaccinated now, you know, the masks are coming off and we're starting to hug each other again, what we're normally used to. Uh, And um, what a great feeling that is.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, how was the energy
1: uh, being back there with everyone? Unbelievable, you know, what I expected it to be and more. Hmm. And people, you could tell, we're just tired of being home, <laughs> and ready to get out and and, and 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 not just see and hear the music, but be a part of the experience. Because you know, uh, you know, we jazz artists, uh, we we we, we want to be close, up close and personal with our fans, and we make ourselves accessible, and that's the way we've always been. So yes, there's still, you know, there were still some COVID protocols in, a, in you know in effect during Sea Breeze but it was really starting to loosen up when we got to the club, you know, like I guess is an older generation of people that most of them were vaccinated. So the mass are starting to come off. We're starting to be able to be close again and we're gonna be okay.
0: Good stuff. You know, you mentioned Marion that, you know, you were grateful that you were able to tell your mother that you were glad that you chose this profession, but let's, let's step back, go back in time, if you will, since we were talking about that, uh, time travel continuum, if you will, let's, let's take it back to a young Marion Meadows. How did you in fact, uh, make your way to the saxophone? What, who, who was it that introduced you to the instrument?
1: Well, you know, it's an interesting story. I was, I was actually in elementary school and a lot of people don't remember that, you know, in our generation, we actually had bands in elementary school, full yeah, band, whole program. Uh, a uh, whole music program mm-hmm. um, I was a product of that uh, by by way of uh, them handing out the little recorders in third grade and uh, you know <clears throat> I think a lot of that was just to find something for the kids to do yeah. and they would always kind of have an eye on art when we were younger and if you remember we did a lot of we did a lot of art we did a lot of painting mm-hmm. music was very much a part of our lives when we were children um And uh, by default, so they handed out the uh, the little recorders and I started playing on it. I was doing tunes already, but <laughs> <laughs> my, teacher, my teacher said, how do you know how to play that? And I go, I don't know. And she goes, well, you seem to, you know, have a little groove with that thing. So right. she said, I'm going to send you down to the band teacher. And she did. And. I went down to the, uh, the the you know the band teacher and he's and he says uh, well he goes what do you want to play and I go I want to play the saxophone he go man everybody wants to play the saxophone everybody <laughs> he goes we don't have any more saxophones oh I go, what do you got he go clarinet I go oh no nah, no nah, man <laughs> so I said I said <laughs> I can't play clarinet bro that that little case I'm gonna get jacked up if I carry that little case. Uh, 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 uh. I said, I can't do it. He said, well, take it or leave it, kid. That's all I got. So I became a clarinet player. And I played clarinet. You know, my my parents eventually saw that I was interested in it. They bought me a clarinet. And, you know, because the one they gave me at school was like an old (laughs) one, And so my parents bought me a really nice new clarinet. Uh, Actually, they didn't buy it because my cousin had a clarinet that she started playing and didn't play anymore. And so my parents bought it from my uncle and um, and I I took over my my cousin's clarinet but then they got me a teacher and I started studying classical music on clarinet and before I knew it I had gone all through elementary school junior high school and now I was in high school and I was still a clarinet player but I started playing saxophone when I got to high school which if you are a reed player you know excuse me the clarinet is a little bit uh, steeper learning curve than the saxophone. Hmm. Believe it or not, clarinet has a little more intricate, uh, different fingerings and octave system, and whereas saxophone is a little more forgiving in that in that respect. So saxophone came easy to me uh, to pick up, with the exception of the embouchure. Um, eventually, I, I I started playing tenor saxophone, and then once I was a saxophone clarinet player, bro, I was in every band. <laughs> <laughs> I was a, I was an instant recruit for the jazz band orchestra marching band. I mean, I lived in the music department in, in high school, and I was a science kid. So, wow. so I was born between music and science, uh, and and I decided I was going to go into pre med for veterinary medicine. I was going to study zoology, and I wanted to do zoo vet and all that kind of stuff. So I was I was studying all the biology and the chemistry and all that kind of stuff, and. And my last year of high school, I got to go with my jazz band to Europe. And when, while I was there, you know, the adulation of the fans, and they wrote an article about me over in Italy. And I called my mom up and I said, I said, I think I want to go to music school. She hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> they, said they, they said, we were hoping that that wasn't going to happen. We knew you played music. But you were a science kid, and so he's like, "Oh, he's good. He's gonna be okay." But it, my father was like, "I don't know. I think he's gonna want to. He's gonna want to choose that music thing." And at the last hour, you know, I did, and they let me go to music school, and uh, it all turned out for the best. You're but good. you went um, to Berkeley, right? I went to Berkeley, and I went to SUNY School for the Arts in New York. Um, nice. uh, so um, I had two two great institutions, and and uh, both great experiences, uh, education wise
0: nice so tell me this has there ever been a professional gig where <laughs> where you've actually pulled the recorder out
1: you know what somebody just asked me that and i haven't done it yet because i found an old recorder that i had you gotta do not it. Not, not, the, not the elementary school one but i gotta <laughs> maybe I do some of that celtic music like some yeah man. You, you, gotta played, do you know the titanic <laughs> or some Native American, you know, some stuff, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to do, do that. I'm going to do that this year. I'm just, just because you said, you said do it, yeah, man.
0: that that would throw everybody <laughs> off and it would be well received. So do you pull the clarinet out at all?
1: Yeah. I, you know what, um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a new clarinet from my company. Okay. Uh, they've made a new clarinet that I'm going to try out and, um, I've done, some clarinet work on some soundtracks. Um, I've recorded with my, my buddy Brian Keane, does a lot of the music for HBO. He works with the Burns Brothers, Ken Burns and Rick Burns. Nice. We recently did a movie called Driving While Black, The Black Experience of Driving in America. Hmm. And uh, it was a Rick Burns movie. Um, although I didn't play clarinet on that, I have played clarinet on some of their films. And on a couple of my, excuse me, a couple of my records, I actually played clarinet and bass clarinet. Nice. So, um but I like to do more of that in in the future.
0: You know who's a great bass clarinetist, uh, Marcus Miller.
1: Yeah, Marcus. Yeah. Yeah. He actually studied it in school. He was uh, when he was. I think he went to Juilliard or something like that. And he was uh, he was a clarinet player and bass clarinet, and he's a great bass clarinet player. Incredible. Yeah, he's Incredible. he's Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. He's even giving me a compliment and you know and I said man we were at uh, some jazz festival in uh, in uh, California one he was playing bass clarinet and I said oh man mm-hmm. he, he, he broke out the dookie stick bro that's like you know the the the, the big old bass clarinet you know I told yeah. I even told my band teacher give me a bass clarinet case it's big man Let me put my... <laughs> <laughs> Let me put the clarinet in the bass clarinet case. At least I look cool. It looks like a saxophone. <laughs> yeah, that little, yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> it is very unsexy. <laughs> yeah, right. Unsexy. Family, if you were just joining the conversation, we are talking to the great saxophonist, Marion Meadows, today. Uh, here's a brand new album that we're going to eventually get to here. But uh, we're, we're talking about right now just your, your humble beginnings, if you will. Um, what local bands did you start playing in as a teenager outside of the school bands
1: well you know there were a couple bands that were uh instrumental in um i would say the the next part of the journey for me um when i was when i was when i was going up you know before college i played in a couple local bands in connecticut some great musicians. Pat Rusticy was a bass player and Pat Rusticy, uh was um, was also uh, went on to become an executive at Columbia Records. Um, and then there was Steve Saichi. Steve Saichi has one of the most prominent music libraries, uh, uh, libra- libraries, in um, online and he's an incredible saxophone player. He plays baritone sax, alto sax. So these were all great musicians. And, you know, when you were in and around New York City, like I was, you know, it was just not the place to be half-stepping. You know, you know the musicians around and in New York City obviously were the best of the best. So they they not only encouraged you to to be a great musician, but if you were to go, gonna jump in both feet in, um, then they would not tolerate you not being the best that you could be. So when you would go into New York City and um, sit in, you know, they tell you, take your little butt on home, you know, get off the stage, you know, until you're ready, right. you know, come back next week, <clears throat> you know, try this song next week. They would encourage you, but they would not uh, uh, patronize you in any way. You know, they would be like, oh yeah, you're great. No, 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 you're not great. You're on your way to maybe being great because they could recognize that you would have talent, but they were tough in New York City. Mm. They, they said, no, bro. That's not it. We already got the best here. We don't need you getting up on the stage, wasting our time. Right, right. You coming in here unprepared, then, you know, see you. But that was such a great way to, you know, to, to, to really, uh, get your wings because, um, there was nobody sitting there holding your hand. You, you would, you would, you would have to show up prepared. <clears throat> and so those musicians that I played with were, were certainly of that caliber. Later on, um, when I, when I got out of college, I played in bands and my, one of the most notable bands was a band called the Sunset Band, which had Brian Keane, great guitarist who played with Larry Coryell, mm-hmm. uh, Joey Malati, who went on to be the musical director for Barry Manilow for 20 years. Wow. Uh, Marty Dixon, who was, a writer of rhythm books and, uh, Kevin Jenkins, who now has played with Shamika Copeland and all the, he's played with, uh, uh, Eric Clapton, you know, an, an incredible bass player out of New York City. All these guys went on to become accomplished musicians. Uh, I'm very proud of all these guys. And as a matter of fact, my friend Brian Keane, who I alluded to earlier, um, that I've done some movie scores with, is 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 a top producer and scorer of films. And he now has uh, like 20 Emmy awards. Nice. Uh, all his HBO uh, uh, HBO boxing. He's done um, uh, tons of uh, King Suleiman, The Magnificent. He's done all these great movies and he's uh, gotten multiple Emmy awards. And this was the band that I grew up playing with. But here's the key. We had a club in Connecticut that we played and the owner of the club did not tell us to play top 40 music. Hmm. He told us to play whatever we wanted to play. Okay. And we were young kids and we were writing our music at that time we would write our songs we go to the club early we work out the songs it was kind of our rehearsal space and he let us try out all of our music on an audience nice and we did this for years ron lawrence came out of that nelson rangel used to come through there Uh, What was the name of the club it was called the foundry cafe okay and the young bloods who were coming behind us were like Nelson Rangel and it was uh, it was uh, Jay Rowe, who eventually became a member of my band. Uh, Ron Lawrence, great guitarist. Now G came and stole from me. Ha <laughs> Now G, <laughs> he used to come up from Brooklyn. I mean, from, I shouldn't say that. I'm saying Jamaica, Queens. I'm going to
0: yeah, yeah,
1: beat if I said Brooklyn. Uh-huh. But he would come up from Jamaica, Queens. And he stole Ron Lawrence for, from me. Mm. And I've been around right. for years. I've catch one of these days, <laughs> but that's my buddy. Um, but yeah, uh, so this was the, these are the musicians that at that time or uh, were the guys in and around New York city who were, who were making a difference as far as, uh, you know, the contemporary jazz scene. And then eventually I met guys like Alice Mignon, you know, who, he and I became label mates on RCA records when I got signed. Um, And then there were, you know, of course, the great guys like Lenny White from down in the the Jamaica Boys, Um, you know, on and on and on. You know, Tom Brown, Funkin' for Jamaica. Yeah. All these cats were, you know, we were all a stone's throw away from one another. Uh, And uh, it was a wonderful time. Absolutely wonderful time. And these bands were the precursors to what our careers were going to be. And only because, like I said, we had a chance to. They didn't say, "Okay, I'll, we need you to play some Tavares," <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, some brass construction, right. you know. <laughs> but but we got to play what we wanted to play, and it jettisoned us ahead of the of the game because we had compositions that had been tried out and people had heard heard them, and we got a chance to hone those songs and and so therefore, as young musicians, uh, we were already ahead of the game.
0: Nice. So, what? So many questions, bro. You you named a lot of, of great artists there. You know some of your contemporaries there. Is there any artist that you feel that you grew up with that also is now your brother for life in music and also has that same level of showmanship and? uh you know has been out there in the forefront in the genre for years who's who's that artist for you
1: well there are many of them but I, but off the top of my head i would say that's probably bob baldwin okay bob baldwin and i kind of grew Straight up together. yeah and and so we not only have we recorded hundreds of songs together we, we we're about to do a duet re- record together at some point nice and uh so he and i pretty much grew up together in parallel to one another and with one another. And we've supported one another and he has, you know, been in the business as long as I have. And we both started out working for Norman Connors, believe it or not. Uh, And he came to do a gig in the Caribbean and um, and we got stranded there. You know, like, you know, here we are young guys and and we didn't have a plane ticket home. So we started doing gigs down in St. Croix. And we hadn't make enough money to, to get a plane ticket. You know, we hey bro, we were like you just said, we were Stone Cold hustlers back then. Yeah. We were in it to win it, or else we it was like, I can't go home yet.
0: Right.
1: I, I got, you know, sleep on the beach and play at night, you know, whatever it took. But he's he's my road dog and has been for, for many, many years. But along the way, certain players came into the game. As we started to record records together, guys like Will Downing, oh yeah, uh, Eric Benet joint, came in on my records early before people even knew who Eric Benet was. Mm-hmm. So we brought along some superstars uh, with us while we were doing it. Um, pieces of a Dream, you know, were guys that uh, out of Philly mm-hmm. that were young guys who were already doing it via uh, Grover Washington. Right. Who eventually Bob produced some records for them and I got a chance to meet James Lloyd and and uh, Curtis, and they became good friends of mine. So we all kept going together. And and as I said, uh, guys like Alex Bignon came along. You know, he was from Switzerland, lived in New York City, mm-hmm. got signed to RCA Records as, as I did, and we became label mates. Uh, and then along came guys like uh, like I said, Nelson Rangel would come to Connecticut and play with us uh, and with Jay Rose Band. And he was and they started a band together with with Ron Lawrence Um, and many, 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 many artists that um, kind of came along. And of course, Najee had already put his first record out and I was still working with Norman and uh, his record was so good. And I mean, I was just so jealous that I just like I got to I got to stop what I'm (laughs) I got to make my first album. And then his record went gold or, you know, something like that, platinum or something. And then I was like, that's it. That's it. So I quit working with Norman for a year. I started recording and I went off to Japan. I got a phone call while I was in Japan working. RCA Records wanted me to fly back to New York, have a conversation. I did and they signed me and then my career was off to a start. So What what year was that? Uh, That was 91. 91. 91, Yeah
0: man the 90s were <laughs> especially the early 90s you know it's an awesome time it was an awesome time we had 300
1: radio stations 360 radio stations to be wow. exact that played contemporary jazz music it was wow. it was mind-boggling i had two publicists at rca uh it was we would be on R&B charts when we came out with records back in those days um i toured with guys like gerald Levert, and you know it, it was you know they. Music was music. So if you played, happened to play jazz, or if you were Angela Bofill, or you were Gerald Lavert, or you were, you know, Shaka um, Khan, we all kind of fit into the same genres somehow. And people kind of got that. But I but also remember I said our generation was so musically uh, deep right. that it didn't matter. There was no such thing as kind of boxing the music up in these different categories yeah it was contemporary jazz and it wasn't called smooth jazz back then I I was never a big fan of that name I mean I'm you know just yeah I I just I just thought that watered us down and here here were these amazing players who had nothing to do with being smooth in my case I came from avant-garde music I wasn't even I wasn't even a contemporary jazz player I was more straight ahead avant-garde cat Mm-hmm. I played in bands in New York City with Kasala, Jumasutan, Rashid Ali, yes. David Murray, and I was a screaming, hollering, blah, 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 you know, and I was that kind of cat. Uh, but yeah, that was or because Ornette Coleman on, yeah, Ornette Coleman, mm-hmm. and we were just adventurous musically because all this music was available to us, the vocabulary was available to us, and we had made us, we had prepared ourselves to be able to explore and experiment with these vocabularies and understanding that if you were going to be a straight ahead player that's a lifetime dedication to being a bebop and if if you had the talent to do that Uh, these are the things that people understood as musicians when I was growing up and then you would say well that's a lifelong dedication so you got to keep you know you got to keep your butt in the house and, and and shed all the time and that's that's that was that mentality also, outside of that was the music. Where, the, where was the music going? And where can I go with the music with twelve, 12 tones of music? Mm. So it was such an interesting time. Now, as I got into contemporary, uh, the contemporary scene, I was still playing with my um, with my avant garde band, New York City. Um, it, matter of fact, we we rehearsed in 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 uh, Die. Bed- uh, I would take the train, and get off at Hoyt Skimmerhorn. Anybody in New York City knows, I'm, no one knows what I'm talking about because I get off at the Hoyt Skimmerhorn and practice with the Aboriginal Music Society. Mm. Uh, and I lived out in Westchester, uh, New York. So I take the train and I was waiting for the train one night and to late at night, we used to have the three o'clock train. We had played Lincoln Center. And my friend, he, my friend uh, Alan Murphy, great drummer, lives in Australia, uh, said, man, take your horn out and play, bro. And it was empty. It was Grand Central Station. He said, "Man, take out your horn." (laughs) And I said, "I said, I don't know, man." (laughs) He said, "Do it. It's like it's cool." So I did. I took it out, and it was like "Ah." it was like all you know reverberating all through. Oh, dude, it was like it was like being in the Taj Mahal. It was amazing. Some guy comes running up. And some guy's walking through, and I see him. And, and he comes running up the steps, and I thought it was a security guard or something. And he said, no, no, no. He says, uh, man, that sounded beautiful. And he goes, I'm Jay Chattaway. I work with Bob James. I'm the arranger for Bob James. Wow. And this is Jay Chattaway who had done all the uh, Chuck Norris movies and the film score. And he lived yeah. out in and he goes, oh, I'm gonna tell Bob James about you, man." And I go, "Yeah, I know Bob James. I heard of Bob James." And and he he did. And three weeks later, I was in the recording studio with Bob James, uh, with uh, Eric Gale and uh, uh, Steve Gab was on drums and uh, Larry King on the bass. And and before I know it, I was now I was doing. You know, I had played contemporary jazz with Norman Connors, obviously. Right. But uh, but now I was thinking of this as being a career move for me to move into the contemporary scene as a recording artist. And I had recorded some stuff with Jock Burwick from Aquarium Dream. And I had sent that down to Bob. I got into the studio. Bob had done arrangements of my stuff. And then we recorded it. We didn't do a record together. Uh, the Tappan Z label didn't last very much longer after that. Uh, but a few years later, I signed with RCA. But that was now I was pretty much uh, had made the decision that this was to the direction that I was going to go in, and um, it was because because of Bob James and getting a chance three weeks later to be in the studio with these unbelievable cats. So it was a, it was a great journey. Although the story has embellished, it went, <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. I can't, bro. I can't even make this stuff up because it went from me waiting for the train to homeless. <laughs>
0: Yeah, man. I was
1: homeless,
0: and I was sitting in the corner next to the sitting bench. In the corner. I had my my little clarinet case open, <laughs> <laughs> and, and a, man, a man appeared out of
1: nowhere.
0: Man appeared out of nowhere. No, send you the buy No, it's, it's an incredible story, man. <laughs> incredible story. So. You know, you've mentioned Norman Connors a couple of times.
1: Was (laughs) was
0: Norman your, was Norman your first big gig?
1: Well, Norman was, I I do credit Norman as discovering me. Okay. You know, when people say, you know, did anybody discover you? I said, yes, Norman Connors did because I actually got a chance to sit in with Farrell Sanders. Norman was Farrell Sanders drummer. Mm -hmm. And when they used to come to a club called the, the, uh, jazz workshop in Boston when I was in college. And there was a place called Paul's Mall. They were both connected, owned by the same people, same club, two different clubs, same same building. And um, <clears throat> Paul Paul's Mall was more of like the, that was more like the showy side. The Jazz Workshop was the more hardcore jazz artists that would come. And um, Farrell Sanders was playing there. My, my buddy Ron was the manager. So he would usually let a couple of guys from Berkeley in to see the shows, you know, because yes. we can afford to go you know, see these shows on a nightly basis, but he would let us in and we'd hang out backstage and stuff. And, um, but sometimes on Sundays they would have the sit-in so the, so the Berkeley New the Conservatory guys would go down with our horns and stuff. And they would say, hey, you want to come and play? So Far- Farrell saw me sitting there with my sax and I didn't know Norman Connors at the time. <clears throat> he he said, come on up and play. I played tenors, and uh, Norman Connors after the, the set was over, came up to me he says, hey man, I like your sound. I'm Norman Connors. I'm getting ready to do some records of my own. And he goes and, uh, you know, uh, you know, when you get out of school or whatever, I can't remember the, the exact conversation, but he did say, I'm gonna call you and maybe you can come do some work with me. Wow. And that did happen. Uh, some years, a few years later, sh- sure enough, I had done some recordings. I knew Jock Burbick, his uh, keyboard player, and um, he uh, gave Norman some of the music that we had recorded together. Norman, I had a day job at the time. I was out of college. I was working at, at a uh, at a nightclub restaurant and um, <clears throat> the owners were gracious enough to let me go to California and they knew I was a musician. I was just a stepping stone. And I went to California and that was it. I recorded with Norman. Then he, I joined his band. Wow, so that's, uh, that's the starship himself. Yeah, I became part of the Starship Orchestra. Yeah, man. <laughs> and so
0: out of that you were able to meet so many greats in, including the great Phyllis Hyman. I did. Yeah. Talk a little bit about Phyllis
1: as uh as an individual. Uh, Phyllis Phyllis was a complicated person, you know, to be honest. Um, certainly an incredible talent. Yeah. she um you know, she had she had things in her life that she was trying to figure out. Uh and you know, along the way, uh, she had challenges. Uh, I mean, many things would come down to fight with Phyllis, and and I think her her some of the demons that you know haunted her throughout her life were the reason um, that kind of culminated in in her taking her life. But but man, what a talent! I mean, I, I was there when ta- when she got uh, the role on Broadway with Margaret um, Pine, sophisticated mm-hmm. ladies. Uh, I played with her at Santa Monica Civic Center when, uh, you know, Bobby Lau was a keyboard player for her and Dennis Davis was on drums and Michael Jackson came standing up next to me in the wings. I was waiting to go back out and play and Michael Jackson came and put his hand on my shoulder and says, I just love Phyllis Hyman. He came just to see Phil. I looked behind me and here's Michael Jackson and uh, you know that. And, and she was just a man. I mean, what can I say? She was bigger than life and she was, she was a big woman. She, her, her voice was just so, it was like nothing, like no other voice that you had ever heard. Um, but, um, you know, uh, she, uh, she uh, there's never going to be another Phyllis Hyman. Um, and that's why her, her place in the music history will always be there. And I'm just fortunate enough to have been around her and to be uh, to, to actually work with her. It was pretty amazing.
0: I still remember I was on air the night that she left us. And uh, it was, the, the night was surreal. You know, the mm-hmm. amount of people that called in and, you know, I stopped playing everything else and only played Phyllis for the rest of the night. And it was... Yep. Boy, oh boy, oh boy! It was one emotional night, man. But Lord, she could sing her ass off.
1: Yeah, we we and and you know what? We actually had a magical moment together because we went to Brazil together. We went to Rio nice. de Janeiro, and it was just one of those nights where we did a song, and it was magical. It was in it was a Rio de Janeiro, and we were singing. It was in this beautiful venue outdoors, and uh, you know. And then I I I just. You know, I was lifted off the ground because I could tell this was one of those magical moments. And being, a, excuse me, being a musician, you know when those moments come along, those very uh, magical uh, experiences on stage, and, and that was one of them. So, you know, I got a chance to share that with uh, with Phyllis, and you know, she was she was a tough chick, man. She, she, she ain't take no <laughs> she miss. <was> tough man. Let's <laughs> jack you up, bro.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard plenty of stories. <laughs> that I most definitely have. So, um, family, again, if you were just joining us, we are on the line with saxophonist Marion Meadows, who is live from Hawaii. I, how did you end up in Hawaii? You got the birds well, chirping in my ear and everything. I'm a yeah, the birds.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah yeah we keep the windows wide open here because the birds are uh they're they're part of the, the 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 backdrop here uh yeah my daughter grew up here in hawaii and i got a place here 21 years ago uh i can't, can't afford to get a place here anymore because it's i'm on maui right. and live up on the haleakala uh which uh, for people who don't know that's the volcano haleakala which is not an active volcano um but it is 10,000 feet high wow. so Up at the top here, um, just, I don't know, a few weeks ago, we had snow at the top. It's It's 10,000 feet up. So it's, uh, I ride my bike up sometimes, believe it or not, all the way to the top. And um, so, yeah, my daughter grew up here. It's a beautiful place, Maui, and um, it's a great place to to raise a child. And we've had, uh, I've had a great experience here. And the people here in Hawaii are just so beautiful um you know oprah has a place a few miles down the road mm. uh and um it's a place where we wait a minute you know, y'all, y'all heard how he said it i mean oprah's right yeah old, You know, and i'm gonna tell you why because it's a place where she can walk around and not have to have a bodyguard wow he comes down to the uh to the little grandma's coffee shop and her and gail king my daughter was working there one day and they showed up walked through the door no bodyguards And her place is, you know, probably a mile and a half down the road um, to and uh, it's a very safe place is what I'm saying. And, you know, we my neighbors, you know, we hardly ever even lock our doors. It's that kind of place. It's we don't we don't have that kind of crime here. Uh, The people are are just wonderfully, wonderfully. They bless you with the love and and respect. Uh, So no one's breaking in your house here and we don't have gun violence here. And 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 that's not because that, oh people in Hawaii are rich. No, no, that's not true at all. We you know this is this is just a regular place that even if people do have money here, they would never flaunt it. This is not their thing. That's not this is not what they do here. People we have flip flops and shorts and and no you know no one's walking around trying to go oh I'm you know I'm so and so and so and so. They they share in the in 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 the feeling that this. The love is most important here, the adoration of the of the land and taking care of that and how much that means to them, um, it's most important to them. But they but they want to be able to just say, hey, look, I'm just you're just regular people here, right. you know? so we're not trying to, you know, not worrying about the gun, we're not worrying about the, you know, we ain't worrying about breaking in your house. We're not trying to do that, and um, at least here in Maui, Honolulu has a you know, this a bigger bigger city. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they have, you know, but even there, it's not, you know, over on Oahu, it's not, it's, it's not something that you could even compare to anywhere else, but here on Maui, much smaller uh, society, and we have, we, we, you know, our trade is a big tourist trade here, and we do encourage people to come up, I'm in upcountry, to come up and see what it's like, because this used to be cattle ranching here, believe it or not, this is, this was all cattle, and we still have a lot of uh, cattle here up on the upside, uh, on the on the other side of the of the um, volcano. And uh, uh, but I just love the fact that uh, it's such a beautiful place. Besides being obviously beautiful, paradise wise, the paradise for me is that it's such a safe place Hmm. and has been safe for my daughter to grow up here. So that's uh, I'm very, 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 uh, you know, I'm happy when I'm here. What's What's your view like? The view is pretty crazy. I I, I I'm i on the big computer, so I wish I could turn it around <laughs> and show you. But uh, it's You're pretty perfect amazing perfect if perfect. you walk out my back door, because you look down to the ocean and we're a few thousand feet up. So it's pretty amazing. The sunsets are different every night. And my, my neighbor always sits up on his balcony and says, you know, it's a different sunset every night in all the years. And he does that sunset every day. I've got tons and tons of pictures of sunsets, but it just goes to show you how amazing nature is and how important it really is. If we're going to, if we're going to uh, try to understand how to survive as a species, if we don't start doing our part to take care of the planet, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you look at this, this, that, that scene that I see every day and I go, how, how could we not, you know, be paying attention to that? Uh, it's, it's just so important. I mean, you know, this is, this is this is, I think, our biggest challenge as human beings is that what are we going to do about our about our planet, you know, and, you know, including out there in the ocean, you know, where they, they, they're they very, you know, here, um, they're very careful, about they don't allow the big big um, boats to come in and fish out the waters here. Oh, nice. They run them out of here, man, because uh, they're fishing out the ocean and they all that dumping and stuff over here in Hawaii. They. I mean that—that's you could rob a liquor store and do less time if you pollute over here. Wow. Uh, yeah, they just—you know—they're just so real constant of that. And the um, the the fishermen go for the restaurants here. They don't buy the fish to come off the fishing. What they do is—is is they go they fish daily. Hmm. So the fish they bring in that day—that's the fish that they eat. They it's don't the do the, fish. yeah, they don't do the you it's know. Store-board. Yeah, yeah, they don't do that. I mean, well, they don't have time mean, island. There's obviously fishermen that go out every day. Right. So when they run out of fish that day at the at the restaurants, they they're out of fish until tomorrow. But um, they 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 really, you know, kind of stick to that. You know, whatever fish the fishermen catch today is the fish that we buy and sell in the restaurant, the sushi restaurants, and all and so forth. Uh, I like that. You know because you know all i've actually thought about i'm a i'm a pescatarian and that's all i do Mm -hmm. eat i I haven't been a meat eater since i was 18 years old but now i'm thinking you know in protest to how much they are you know i just saw seaspiracy on 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 the um netflix and and they're saying they're saying you know marine biologists are saying that by 2048 and i know people you know they they go "I i can't listen to that but 2048. I mean, 2048 is not that long it's down the road. Yeah. This, the oceans could be fished out, man. Oh my gosh. Out, and that that doesn't mean there wouldn't be fish in the ocean, but they're not. They would not be enough sustainable. Sustainable, yeah. By 2048, because they do what's. Do you know what the when they when they when they trawling is? Trawling is these big giant. It's not just a big giant net. It's these big metal rims around them they drop them to the bottom of the ocean and they drag up everything off the bottom. They tear the reef up, they'll tear up anything on the bottom, sea turtles, sharks, whatever gets caught in the net and the net goes on for a couple of miles and they just drag it across the ocean floor. (laughs) (laughs) And and, I mean, you know, that's just not a way to.
0: It's disrespectful on so many levels.
1: Yeah, it is. Yes. It is, and that's human beings do that. I mean, no yes. one, nobody else does. I mean, nobody, nobody does that but us. Right. Um, and I only say it because I am here in Hawaii, and I see the effects of that. Because people, they, they're, they're so against all of that, and and that's part of the mentality. Listen, we could do this a, a different way, and we all have to have sustainability food wise. Um, so, you know, these these parts that we all play in it are very important down to the microcosms of what we're going to do. And you see everybody scrambling now for the electric car thing. You know, I sat with a woman on the plane from NASA and when I was in Huntsville and she said, they waited too late. Okay, so now we need to do something about it, but we've been saying this for 50 years. Yeah. You know, we can't, you don't need the gasoline car. And I know there's a big industry, don't get me wrong, I'm not naive to any of those things, but when they've been telling you for 50 and 60 years to start and now everybody's racing for the electric car and how we're going to charge it and what's going to be the battery uh so okay but we should have been doing this a long time ago long time ago. You know, as we should have been being prepared for diversity in our country hmm. we saw it coming you know you know all of a sudden we go back to calling each other names yeah. are you serious this is we're just being irresponsible as human beings that we not preparing ourselves. You know, it's just the way you prepare yourself. You and I had to prepare ourselves to get online today. And you know, what if it was, oh man, hold on, let me yes. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just common sense. I, I want to be prepared. I'm I'm talking to you. I don't I don't want to be all disorganized. And we do that anyway. We, we we do this when we go to our job. We do this when we're organizing our family. So life should be that way. And so, why are we surprised now that we come to this point in our life and we're starting to call each other names again? It's because we didn't prepare society for what was going to come next. We already knew there was going. We already knew there was a, a a black population and a Mexican population and Ethiopian population, an Italian population, a Jewish population. We've all been here for all these years, as our parents and grandparents have been here. So why all of a sudden are we call each other names again? and having these discussions about race and, and policing we already saw this coming you know and i asked I, I call all i call all of my black friends and family members and i said to i said have you ever been stopped by the police for being black mm. 100% of my friends said yes 100% so what does that tell you that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that all policemen are racist that means there's always been a problem while driving, while being a black man. Since day one. That's, that's, so Since if there's a problem one. while being black and driving, does not mean that all policemen, because I've been stopped by many police officers for whatever reason, maybe a traffic ticket or something. And then were, they were very kind people, you know. But that's, that's not to say that there hasn't been a problem that we needed to address for a long time. So now you're just not going, oh, Oh, there's a problem. Man, there's always been a problem.
0: Problem's been in the entire time.
1: You know
0: know what? All right, let's let's transition here because I don't want us to run out of time and us not get to the big news, of course, which is your brand new album. uh, Twice is nice. It uh, it came out back in April, right? Yes.
1: Yes. Twice is nice. Uh, uh, We released it in April. you know number 16 for mary meadows and uh nice. <laughs> still going strong 30 uh, years. <laughs> yeah. uh yeah so i'm very happy uh for the new record and i got a chance to work with uh three great producers paul brown mm-hmm. who i had a chance to work with the Hitmaker, Hitmaker, mm-hmm. and my buddy jeff Lorber okay. and i've been trying to do some songs together finally and that's gonna be the next single, uh, Lunchbox with Jeff Loeber. Wait till you comes out. You guys Jeff are gonna go. Jeff the godfather. He's the godfather. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: of course, Chris, I'm, I'm Big Dog <laughs> Chris Big Dog Davis. Chris Big Dog Davis is the secret sauce. He is the secret sauce in contemporary jazz.
1: Yes, he is. Yes, Love he that, is. brother.
0: Love that. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you went up to Connecticut to work with him or you guys just did Oh yeah, instead? well
1: you know I have for many many years worked with Chris and uh, then I you know, during the pandemic I worked out of my studio in Nashville uh, and I got a chance to see Chris a couple times but uh, pretty much we all worked from home um, recording and um, so we got it done uh, and uh, I, I had, let's see, got Joey Somerville Came on and did a song with me. Uh, I invited uh, Steve Oliver Mm -hmm. to do a really eclectic song uh, with me called Kaleidoscope, and uh, not a lot of uh, guest artists because I wanted to showcase Paul and you know Big Dog and and uh, you know uh, Jeff Lorber. So that's not a shabby crew to have. I was just about to say, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you you don't need a lot of people when you have some (laughs) of the best on there, bro. Yeah.
0: So what, which song on this album are you the most proud of? If that's even a fair question.
1: Well, you know, um, I don't do a whole lot of cover songs, uh, but I did do Bonnie Raitt's uh, I Can't Make You Love Me. And I, I, I really love that uh, song. And although a lot of people have recorded it, um, I've always wanted to record it, and and I did. Uh, Paul it. Uh, we did some musicians out of Nashville. And um, it just came out beautiful. I'm, I'm very happy with that as a cover song because as I said before, I don't do a lot of cover songs. Yeah. And uh, the uh, one of the, the, the songs that I really love is is the kaleidoscopes song that I did uh, uh, with Steve, Steve. Oliver. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a there's some great songs on there. I tend to lean toward the towards the more esoteric stuff and that's just who I am. Uh, and that song has a lot of different parts and and flavors and colors. So I hope everyone enjoys uh, you know all the songs on the record, um, and especially that one. And Steve, you know, he, he was the guy that I had in my <clears throat> had in mind when I uh, when I said who who can who can I get on this song? And he has that special thing that he does. That really he cool. Does that he definitely does.
0: Man, I tell you, time flies when you're having fun and we have been having a whole lot of fun today, but uh, Marion Meadows is an incredible brother, whether he's playing recorder, uh, (laughs) clarinet, or saxophone, and uh, whether he's out there riding his bike or he's sitting out there in his studio watching the sunset, Uh, this is a brother who is an, an OG, if you will, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, 30 plus years, 16 albums under your belt. And, uh, you know, you're getting back out there or have gotten back out there on the uh, touring circuit. What's your website and your social media so that folks can keep up with your touring schedule?
1: Oh, sure. It's uh, Um You know, I have, I'm have i an artist as well, so I have Marion Atmospheres, but you can reach all of my uh, photography. So Marion Mary Metals Photography, uh you know mary meadows at facebook instagram and twitter um but if you go on marymeadows.com, you can uh, access my um artwork and my photography um and just hit the link uh, and you can leave me comments and um also hey maybe you want to get some original mary meadows art as well there you go
0: this is this is a man of many 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 talents so by all means check him out and definitely check out his latest album twice as nice on the shanaki label it is one incredible album that your ears definitely need to hear well family that is going to do it for this edition of cool jazz conversations the program is a production of TVM productions broadcast from its home of wssb 90.3 fm at uh, South Carolina State University. You can find the podcast on iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Alexa, Amazon Music, Player, FM. pretty much anywhere you find streaming programs, you'll find us there. And you can also find us online at www.cooljazzconversations.podbean.com. Com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Cool Jazz Conversations. My name is Marcella Shepard, the bass man. Thank you all for your ears. Until next time, y'all be good. Peace.